This podcast may not be suitable for young listeners. Agent Blue watched several cars pull into the camping area on his monitor. Within an hour, 18 vehicles were stacked in the small camping area, and the happy campers were setting up tents and leveling trailers. Smoke began to rise as fires were built, and people were starting to gather in circles with lawn chairs. Two more agents now sat by his side watching, all shaking their heads at the absurdity of the situation. It was hard to believe that people paid for this trip. Blue motioned for his team to follow him into the small conference room. It was nothing special, an unused room in the rented office space slightly larger than the other offices on the floor. Inside was a table surrounded by chairs, and on one wall hung four 65-inch 4K monitors. Only two were showing images at this time. One was a satellite view of the area, and the other was a point-of-view image being fed through a GoPro camera strapped to a man's chest. Technicians had rigged it with a broadcasting device. The feed was sent to the satellite and then to their headquarters. The man wearing the camera set up his tent quickly and was now making the rounds introducing himself. The four agents on Blue's team took their seats, opened notepads, and waited to be briefed. I'm hoping you remember a topic we briefly covered two months ago regarding Bigfoot tour scams, said Blue. All three nodded. They remembered. Good. We monitor as much traffic on social media as we can with the idea that these topics of discussion and posts will give us the locations of hot spots of creature activity. It's never been the best source, but the artificial intelligence we use sifts through most of it and gives us what little information it thinks is viable. One thing we began noticing two years ago is where there is an interest, there is money to be made by con men. Right now, we have four that we watch. The others can't seem to drum up business. None of these people are seriously breaking the law, so again, we're not to spend much time on this. However, this man, Blue pointed to a digital mugshot of a man on the monitor. He is the most prolific con artist. He has organized several weekend campouts promising innocent people a sighting of Bigfoot or some degree of Bigfoot experience. His name is Tom Chatham. We don't know if he actually believes what he preaches, and we don't care. Furthermore, we don't care that the people dumb enough to follow him are paying $5,000 to camp with him for a weekend. If he continues his con, it does not affect our mission. Agent Blue leaned over to his laptop and brought up the satellite image of the area on another monitor. People walking about the campground in engines still hot from the trip They showed up in red, standing out from the environment. Looks like he has a good crew with him on this trip. He should be making a killing. But there is a problem, said Blue. Blue used the laptop to increase the field of view on the monitor. 
In the woods across a creek filled with cypress trees and oaks in a deep swamp, the images showed several additional heat signatures. They were moving randomly toward the campground at a slow pace. This is the 10th or 12th trip with these groups as far as we know. He has never camped in a location where a clan of these things actually live. But this weekend, he got lucky. Or unlucky. The stars have aligned and he's about to give these people what they paid for. But I don't believe they're going to like what they get. We have known about and followed this clan and have charted their activity as we normally do. They have caused some issues through the years, and in most circumstances like this, we would have eliminated them, but the clan is so big that none of our outsourced teams have the manpower to take them out. And as usual, our in-house team of operators are busy elsewhere. I don't know the intentions of these creatures. We might be too late if they decide to attack. I would say this group has a 50-50 chance of surviving the night. Maybe we will get lucky and they will stay hidden, but I'm counting 15 Sasquatches on this screen right now, and I doubt if we are seeing all of them. There is a good chance that there is a rogue Squatch in this clan. Right now, there's nothing we can do except warn them through our inside man with the GoPro. He is an operative we hired to keep tabs on this con man. He is much less informed than our outsourced operators. And unless you people have any suggestions, I will call him and get him up to speed on the situation and ask him to warn the group to get out now. The group fell silent while Agent Blue watched the minds in the group go from their mental list of options. When no one said anything, he picked up a satellite phone and he called Juan Rodriguez, the eyes on the ground, and he explained the crisis. Juan agreed that they needed to get out and disconnected the line. The room remained silent in Langley, Virginia, while Rodriguez walked over to Chatham and explained they were in grave danger and they needed to leave. Are you kidding me, Juan? said Chatham. These people paid good money to see a Sasquatch and I plan to deliver. You can leave if you want, but there will be no refund. Tom, I have absolute reliable intel that these creatures are all around us. We really are in danger and you need to let everyone know, said Juan. Okay, said Chatham. You can either come up with the $90,000 to pay these people back, or you can go to hell, Chatham walked away. Back in the conference room, one of the agents seated at the conference table said, Good God, this guy's making a killing off of these people. Yes, he is, said Blue. This is what I figured Chatham would say. Does anyone have an idea, or are we going to leave these people to those beasts? The only woman on the team, Agent Red, spoke up. It is unlikely this clan will attack the whole group. They know when they make a big move, like killing more than one person, that humans usually follow. I say we let the odds play out. You said they have a 50-50 chance of surviving. I think it's more like 80-20 that they'll be okay. Agent Blue thought for a moment, and then he said, If this were a group of teenagers or families having an average weekend camping, I would agree with you, Red. But you know what these Bigfoot types do. They go into the woods making their ridiculous calls and whacking on tree trunks. They can't help themselves. 
This will agitate the clan and raise the odds that they become violent. The woman agreed. There was an added dynamic to this situation. And then she said, Do we have any outsource operators close enough to get to them tonight? None, said Blue. The two men in East Texas we used to have vanished. I think they are alive, but I think they're worn out from hunting these things. I can't imagine the toll it takes on a man's psyche. And because of that, we are now down to only four outsource operators in the southeastern part of the country. Where is the closest team? asked another from the table. Memphis, said Blue. Steve Lilly and his crew. But they are at least ten hours away. Maybe it's worth a try, said female agent Red. Blue picked up his phone and he dialed Lily with the speaker feature enabled. Lily answered on the second ring. Mr. Lily, said Blue, we have a situation. Is this Agent Green? asked Lily. No, this is Agent Blue. Well, I think you were Agent Green last time we talked. It doesn't matter, Steve. We have a situation and I need your help. How do y'all decide what color agent you're going to be? The team members in the room smiled at each other. They liked Steve Lilly, even if Blue was incessantly annoyed with him. They all knew this is why Steve Lilly pestered Blue with questions. Why couldn't Blue figure that out is what they all thought at the same time. Do y'all change colors now and then just to change things up? Because I could swear you were Agent Green the last time I talked to you. By the way, how's Agent Red doing? The question made her smile. She wished there was a way to meet the enigmatic Steve Lilly. Maybe someday, she thought. Blue didn't answer. He stood over the table, looking down at his phone, shaking his head. A slight grin creeped across his face. Maybe he was starting to understand the game Steve Lilly played with him. Are you finished asking questions, said Blue. All right, then, what's your situation, said Lily. Blue spent the next ten minutes explaining the problem while the other agents in the room gave their perspective. Steve Lilly never interrupted. When they finished, Steve said, I need to get my team together before I commit to this job, but I think they have the weekend free. I'll be back to you in thirty minutes. When you gonna come see me there, Agent Red? She burst out laughing and she left the room. She was putting on a show of indifference to her team, but she actually wanted to meet the man. Twenty minutes later, Lily called back and said they would be leaving within the hour. He could not make any promises, but he could get there as soon as possible and do what he could. Agent Blue added, Steve, this is not a kill mission. There are no less than 30 people in the campground. We expect maybe 50. There is no need to make a big show of this. We need to protect these people, and that is it. I don't get paid to protect people, said Steve. I get paid for squatch heads, remember? We will cover your expenses and pay you a bonus for doing the job. If you have to engage, we understand, but try to keep this as civil as you can. You do not need to draw attention to what you're doing for us. All right, Agent Green. I mean, Agent Blue. The place you're sending us? There are no docile squatches in that area. I know the boys you've been paying to handle that problem down there. Those squatches are so mean, those guys couldn't take the pressure anymore. I doubt we'll be able to keep this quiet. Your best bet is get those campers out of there. 
You are right, said Blue. I guess there is no way to do this without fireworks, but do your best, please. The Memphis crew was heading to a section of the National Preserve just north of Beaumont, Texas, called the Big Thicket. Chet Warner was a wiry little man. He looked anorexic. Half his teeth were missing and the other half would fall out soon. He was dressed in filthy jeans and a t-shirt that was once white. He stepped into the black water of the big thicket swamp. He struggled with the heavy backpack and right away lost his balance in the mud and fell over into the water. Shit, he whispered. Least it wasn't my good set of clothes. Using a cypress knee for a support, he stood back up and then tightened the straps on his backpack. He remembered a piece of pipe in the bed of his truck, and he stepped back onto the road and retrieved the piece of metal conduit, and he used it as a walking stick. Now his chances of falling in the water again were diminished. There was no need to go too far into the swamp to deploy the speakers. Maybe a hundred yards in, hang a speaker from a tree, and then another hundred and hang the last one. Remember to switch it on or you won't get paid, he whispered. The warm May weather made the walk bearable. If it had been colder, he would have suffered. He hated cold weather. The trees had put out leaves, making the swamp a dark green, and he could feel his lungs fill with oxygen that seemed more available from the foliage around him. When he lit a cigarette and ruined all that, The smoke swirled around and behind his head, and he took short, measured steps. He was almost there. Tom Chatham had hired Chet that morning in Beaumont. He was standing at the counter of the Junior Food Mart, flirting with the store clerk when Chatham walked in. The girl seemed thankful that Chatham had walked in, and after making his purchase, Chatham asked the man to walk outside and show him on the map where the Lance Rozier unit was, in the big thicket preserve. Can you show me how to get there on this map? asked Chatham. He was pointing at a spot close to the Natchez River in the big thicket national preserve. Yeah, been there a few times. Not real familiar with the area. What are you doing down in those bottoms? Some friends and I are camping for the weekend, said Chatham. Chet scratched his chin and tried to look smart for a minute. Scratching your unshaven, scraggly beard always clues people into how smart you are. This man was in a nice truck, probably had some money in his pocket, and an idea formed in Chet's small little mind. Well, where are y'all camping? asked Chet. I'm driving as far as I can down this road, and I want to find a clear area for a few people to camp. When I can't go any further, that's where I'm going to set up my tent. Does the name of that road ring a bell? Oh, hell yeah, I know that place like the back of my hand. Let's say you follow me there and I'll put you right on the road. How does $50 sound? You fill up my tank. Chet grinned. If this guy bit, he'd have beer money for the whole weekend. Chet had never been to this place and he wasn't sure he could get there now. But if the map was right, it should be easy money. How about $200 and I fill your tank? You take me there, and then you do one more thing for me when we arrive. What's the other thing? asked Chet, becoming suspicious. He hoped the guy didn't need a tent mate for the night. He wasn't in for that shit. 
To Chet's great relief, Chatham explained further. Here's $50. Now go fill your tank up. And when we get there, I need you to carry something out in the swamp for me. I'll pay you the rest when the job is done. You got it? You got a deal, mister, said Chet, taking the cash from Chatham's hand. He pulled his truck next to the pump and put $10 in his tank. An hour later, they turned onto the gravel road that was not kept in good repair, and Chatham stopped and got out. From the back seat of his truck, he extracted a backpack, and he walked up to Chet's truck and dropped it in the bed. When I find a place to camp, I want you to drive ahead no more than a quarter of a mile, and then I want you to walk these speakers into the woods and hang them on trees a hundred yards apart and aim them back the way I'm parked and then drive back through when you're done, and I'll give you the rest of the money. Chet Warner scratched his beard, and he looked forward. You want me to? If you don't want to do it, you just tell me now. I'll do it myself. I don't have time to discuss this. Yeah, 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 I'll do it, I'll do it, said Chet. It wouldn't be that hard. It hadn't rained in a month, and he figured if there was any water in the woods, it'd be shallow. Shouldn't be a big deal. And then I'll have beer money for three weeks, he thought. Chatham stopped at the clearing and pulled off, and Chet Warner drove right on by. When he was a quarter of a mile past Chatham, he stopped and he started walking. Chet knew he only had three hours of daylight left. That was plenty of time to get out by dark, but if he got turned around in there, the dark would make it real hard to find his truck. He picked up the pace and he hung the first speaker on an oak tree as far as he could reach. Now to the next tree and then back to his truck. Turn the damn thing on, he whispered to himself and walked back to the device and punched the button on the back just like the man had showed him. The speaker made a deep bass hum for a few seconds and then it went quiet again. In the distance, he picked out a tree he thought was the right distance from the last, and he headed to it almost at a jog. The mosquitoes and the gnats were getting thick, and he was ready for a cold beer. Warner was on dry ground now. The tree he picked was in the water. Screw it, he thought. This tree right here looks just fine. He dropped the backpack to the ground, and he reached to unzip the top when a hand snatched him straight up in the air. It felt like an anvil had fallen from a tree. Something had him, but he couldn't see it. The hand held him facing away. He tried to reach to his neck to loosen the grip that this person had on him, but his arms wouldn't move. Flailing his feet to kick the guy was no use either. His neck was broken. He was paralyzed from the neck down but he didn't know it. He heard his own whimper as the hand lowered him to the water just a few feet away and shoved his head under. The grip loosened on his head and neck, and the pressure was gone. He could break free now, but when he attempted to get up, nothing happened. He couldn't hold his breath any longer. He was running out of air. He had to do something, and panic set in. The anvil came down again on his head, shoving his face deep into the loose mud. The big thicket male Sasquatch stood on Chet Warner's head until the bubbles stopped.
The creature then snatched the lifeless body from the mud and carried it away into the swamp. Lewis and I sat on the back porch with a friend sipping on beers while we waited for Hook to show up. He should have been here an hour ago. I was reluctant to call him and ask where the hell he was, but if Hook was late, there was a reason. And if he wasn't going to show, we would have heard from him. Hook didn't do people that way. I had taken the call from Agent Blue while I was at work. We were welding out a big truss that had to go out Monday. It had to be done before we left. The welder beside me, his name was Bryant. He and I kicked it in overdrive the last hour and got that thing knocked out. When we clocked out, I dropped the bad news on my buddy Bryant. Something's come up, brother, and I can't fish this weekend, I said. Oh, that's okay, Bryant said. Maybe next weekend. Bryant was a single guy who had been discharged from the Marine Corps only a few months ago. He was trying to get his life back in order after six years of fighting wars in places we should not have been fighting wars. Bryant was a good hand, and I liked him. He didn't say much. He just worked. Well, I invited him to go fishing with Lewis and me over the weekend, and he was excited to get into some crappie. The look on his face when I dropped that bomb on him, well, it made me feel bad. I tell you what, I said as he and I walked to our cars out of the shop. Lewis and I are headed down to East Texas to do a job. You think you might want to go with us? Brian never asked what the job was. He said yes immediately. He had clothes to change into in the car. He just needed a shower after working all day. Well, that ain't no problem, I said. You can shower at my place. We should be done by Sunday and be home that night. You sure about going? Yeah, I'll go. Nothing else to do. Well, get your shit and throw it in my truck. Leave your car here. After showers, we waited on Hook, who finally showed up around 7. We loaded in his SUV and we headed south. Hook was silent most of the way. His old lady had walked out on him the week before and the man was all tore up. I worried that big old Hook wasn't on his game for this job, but I figured if things got active, he would kick in. Bryant had no idea where we were going or what we had planned. I knew he had questions, but there was no use explaining it until after we got there. If we ran into squatches, he would go through the same process the rest of us had. And no, it didn't matter if he told anyone what we did. No one ever believes these stories anyway. We were rolling through Jackson, Mississippi. I was driving and Hook and Lewis had slept the last three hours. Bryant was in and out, but there had been no conversation other than introductions. Hey, Bryant, you handle an AR-15? I asked. I'm guessing being an infantry marine that you probably can. Yeah, no problem. We aren't robbing a bank, are we? Bryant asked. Everyone burst out laughing and the conversations finally started. We tried to explain to Bryant what we were going to do in Texas. They never believe you when you tell them right off the bat. Lewis and Bryant sat in the back, and Lewis reached over and patted on Bryant's leg, and he said, We aren't getting you into trouble, B. I think you'll enjoy this if I'm reading you right. Okay, was Bryant's response. Bryant had been in two wars in his young life. Whatever these guys had planned, it didn't compare. He rested his head back, and he fell asleep. 
Did you and your girl get things worked out, Hook? Asked Lewis. Nope, it's a done deal after tonight. She's out of my mind. I'm single again, and after the shock of her walking out, this feels pretty good. Hell, I'm kind of glad Blue called you, Steve. I needed the distraction. Can you tell us what we're walking into? Said Hook. I explained the situation and that we were dealing with a con man. When I told the guys they had a head count of up to 20 squatches, the conversation got real serious. That might take a week to find them all, Steve. I gotta be back by Tuesday for work, said Hook. You need a job like me, Hook, then you can set your own hours, said Lewis. If any of us knew what you did, maybe we would be inspired, said Hook. I can't talk about it, and you know that, and you'd be better off not knowing. I'll tell you what I do when you tell us what you do, said Lewis. I'm a bouncer at the strip club. You know what I do, said Hook. You a one percenter, full patch and rocker, MC club member, Hook. And all you do is take cover charge money at the door? Don't treat me like I'm stupid, boy. You boys into everything, said Lewis. Hook looked back at Lewis and smiled. I don't know anything about that, and then gave Lewis a high five while they both laughed. Okay, are y'all done with the elevator talk? I said. Yeah, yeah. What are we doing in Texas, Steve? said Lewis. This ain't no kill mission unless we absolutely have to start shooting, I said. I noticed Bryant raise his head and listen from the back seat. We need to make sure that nothing happens to these people while this guy's taking their money. Chatham doesn't know that he has stepped into a nasty Bigfoot nest. All we have to do is set up so that we are within a five-minute drive in case they need us. If nothing happens, we don't move in, and they will never know we were there. We'll catch the festivities on the satellite. The last intel I got was that the Squatches were moving closer to the campsite, though. Everyone's hoping the beasts are just curious. Anyway, we're the only to observe unless they need us. Oh, they're going to need us. You know that, said Lewis. Maybe, I said. You guys are serious, aren't you? Asked Bryant. You'll see, said Hook. We were on pace to roll into the big thicket around 4 a.m. Okay, folks, now that we are all here, there are a few safety rules that you need to follow, said Tom Chatham. First, no one goes into the woods at night. No one goes alone. I'm not worried about your safety. I'm concerned that we do not disturb the Sabe. We will stay within this camping area tonight, and tomorrow we will venture out and look for Sabe evidence. Why do you call them Sabe? asked one of the campers. It's an ancient word used by our native brothers for millennia. In this group, we will stay as true to the ancient ways as possible. It will increase our chances of having a full visual at best, and we might hear some Sabe language at the least. Chatham knew that Sabe was a word made up by another crackpot blabbermouth YouTuber. He had convinced his followers that was a real word and had become the latest fad among the couch researchers in the Bigfoot community. All con men think alike. It was now 10 p.m., and the night was black with no moon. A large fire built by the campers lit the area with a haunting orange glow. Chatham's paying customers were setting up lawn chairs and getting as close to their Bigfoot guru as possible, 
They craved his wisdom and knowledge. A few disagreements broke out among the crowd, some shoving and pushing as they clamored for the best view, but was soon settled and everything moved back into the tranquil Bigfoot experience they all expected. Chatham, now sitting in the middle of 50 onlookers, wondered what had happened to the skinny man he hired to set out the speakers in the swamp. He had not come back through to collect his money, and this would be the perfect time to remotely activate the recorded Bigfoot sounds. Once the crowd quieted down a bit, Chatham raised his fat body out of the extra-wide lawn chair. Everyone got real quiet. The expert was about to speak. Chatham wobbled through the crowd, stepping over lawn chair legs, almost falling twice, until he was close to the tree line. After inhaling both lungs full of air and cupping his hands around his mouth, he made a secret Bigfoot call, and then he waited. With his right hand now in his pants pocket, he removed the remote so that the crowd couldn't see it, and he pressed a button. Nothing happened. After pressing it twice more, he came to the conclusion that the skinny man had stolen the speakers. They were worth much more even in a pawn shop than Chatham had offered to pay him, and if Chatham had been facing the crowd, they would have noticed the disappointment in his eyes. This was one of the best gimmicks about his scams. Chatham was world-renowned on the internet for drawing Bigfoot calls. Many Bigfoot responses had been recorded and uploaded to every social media platform imaginable. He made one last odd call into the woods and then he pressed the button on the second remote from his pocket. The sound came back was music to his ears. A wide smile wrinkled his fat face. He had them fooled again and now he knew one of the speakers worked. Maybe the other was malfunctioning. It didn't matter. He had $90,000 in his pocket for this trip alone, all paid up front. The speakers cost him $500. It was a small cost of doing business, and he had just delivered to his customers exactly what they wanted to hear. He never thought about the skinny man again. Waddling back through the crowd to his chair, he began to talk to the crowd, who now looked at him with great anticipation. You are now in the home of an ancient troop of Sabe. They will not hurt us or do harm to any of us, so you can all sleep well tonight. They may come in and check out the camp. Gift them a portion of your food as an offering to the spirits of this place. They are ancient spirits, and they know your every thought, whether good or evil. Your gift will be gone in the morning, and you will never see them take it. For again, they move invisible in his spirits through this ancient land, time, and space. Even Chatham thought he was creating a masterpiece with his speech. Several cameras were on him as he spoke. It was just free advertisement for the next camp out, he thought. I have spent thousands of hours in these swamps communicating with the Sabe, he continued his lie. Almost amazed at himself, he was making this up as he went. So many hours that the troop knows me well. I know their names. I know their family members. The veil has been pulled back for only me to see the entire structure of their community. 
Last year at this time, I was invited by the elders of the troop to be present at the birth of twin Sabes. It was the most spiritual experience of my life. That is why I planned this outing exactly one year from that day. And if we are fortunate, we will meet the one-year-old twin Sabe. This is what you came for, and this is what I plan to deliver, he said. Women in the crowd gasped. Now he knew he had won over the women. No one had heard this lie before, and Chatham was grinning in his mind while he held his hands outstretched, his head raised to the stars and his eyes closed. Silence covered the area while they waited for Chatham to speak again. But instead, he howled once again into the night air. All eyes turned to the woods and waited. And with his hand now around the remote in his pocket, he pressed a button that would produce the sound of more than one Bigfoot. When the noises ceased, the crowd burst into discussion, amazed at what they were hearing. Chatham allowed them to converse. He sat silent in his chair with his chin resting on his chest, almost as if he were praying. With his eyes closed and sure all the attention was now back on him, he spoke again. Remember that we are only guests here. I will ask you to refrain from making any further calls tonight. It will only make them uncomfortable and they will not respond. They know my calls and they trust me but they don't know you. I think that is enough to begin our experience. I want you all to enjoy yourselves. Tomorrow we will communicate further and hopefully they will show themselves so that you will see what I have seen. Everyone enjoy your evening and get some sleep. We have an exciting day ahead of us. The lies rolled out of his mouth with the least bit of conviction. How had I stumbled on such a good gig, he thought. When he first started, he worried that without actual sightings, the con would not play out. However, he found that the need to believe was so strong, and the need to follow someone into the mystery surrounding Bigfoot was so powerful, that the little he did deliver was more than enough. They kept coming back for more. It was the perfect con and he could do this six times a year. At $100,000 per weekend, the cash would pile up quickly. He would ride this con as long as it paid, and when it stopped paying, he would move to the next one. With that, he headed for his tent as some of the crowd followed. Stopping to talk with some, he finally told them he needed some rest. It had been a long day, and his followers wandered back to the fire where the conversation was electric. After setting up his cot and arranging the interior of his tent, he walked out into the back of his tent where the crowd couldn't see him. He unzipped his fly and began to relieve himself. The glow of his headlamp was bright, and while he urinated, he panned the edge of the woods in front of him. The woods were beautiful, but the darkness gave him the creeps. He would never do this alone, but with this crowd around, he felt a measure of security. His head panned to the right until the light from the fire made the headlamp beam useless. So he panned to the left. He saw something strange standing just inside the trees. His head stopped, and his urine stopped flowing. 
What is that? he thought. It was something on two legs. He thought it was. Maybe not. It's holding something. Reaching to his light, he clicked it to the highest beams, never moving his head. And there, now clear in his vision, stood a giant figure swaying back and forth rhythmically on two legs. In its left hand hung the body of the skinny man Chatham had hired to set out the speakers. The body was broken and limp. The creature's hand encompassed the man's torso. Chatham got weak in the knees and he fell backward into his tent and he collapsed it. He rolled his fat body trying to gather a measure of balance. When he was back to his feet and the light was again steady on the woods, the creature was gone. He quickly ran to the front of the tent and almost cried out for help, but then he thought better of it. He watched, hoping to see that someone else had seen this creature. The glow of the campfire dimly lit the tree line. Surely someone saw it, but the conversation was still a muted mumble from that distance. Well, I must have imagined it, he thought. Slowly, he walked to the back of the tent and straightened the prop poles. He shined his headlamp to the area again, and there was nothing there. Too much Bigfoot talk, he thought. Now I'm starting to believe this shit. Chatham laid in his cot and covered himself with a blanket. And he stared at the vent in the roof of his tent, and he watched the glow of the campfire flicker on the fabric. Had he seen a Bigfoot? Did they really exist? No, it was impossible. Those things don't exist. His mind was playing tricks on him. It had been a long day. He needed sleep, that's all. He just needed sleep. One more night in this place and I'm out of here, he thought. He was ready to leave right then, but he had to deliver the experience for the crowd. Repeat business and word of mouth was the key to this gig. One more night, he whispered. Next time, find a place that isn't so damn creepy. We pull through Beaumont, Texas at 4 a.m. At 5 a.m., we sat in Hook's SUV on a gravel road that led straight to the Natchez River. The Chatham expedition would be camped somewhere down this road if Blue's intel was correct. I called Blue, and I grinned, thinking about rousting him out of bed at this hour. But to my surprise, he answered on the first ring. What is up, Steve? he asked. Did I wake you up, Agent Blue? Nope. Are you in Texas? he asked. Just pulled into the big thicket reserve, I said. This place reminds me of home. Do you have an update for us? Several creatures moved close to the camp last night. An hour ago, two of them went into camp, retrieved some food the campers apparently left out, and then retreated back into the woods. I don't think they were detected. Blue paused. In any case, we think they are a violent group. One of the big males has been carrying a dead human corpse with him all night. The body is not one of the campers, though, just an innocent bystander in the wrong place at the wrong time. The fact that a singular human was taken by the creature was not unusual. It happens. For all we knew, this human might have been taken days ago before Chatham's group even arrived. 
Furthermore, it is not uncommon in large groups that a squatch will carry his kill around with him for a week. They do this for two reasons. One, to allow the meat to season. Apparently, it tastes better three days later. And two, if it's in the squatch's hand, there is no way it can be stolen by another squatch. They are stingy with their food. Agent Blue continued, My advice is to hang back and watch the satellite for a while, get some sleep, watch the monitors and shifts. If you're needed, you can get in there quickly, or you can go in there and let the leader of the group know what you know and tell them to get out of there now, because we don't know what the clan will do tonight. It's up to you, Steve. Well, I thought about this on the drive down. The best thing for us would be to get them to leave. Then we move in and act like we're camping and get the squatches in close, take a few heads, make twice the cash. I didn't say that to Blue, but I was thinking it. Right now, and you will see this on the laptop, there are 8 to 10 squatches hovering just 100 yards from their camp. This behavior is indicative of them being agitated. That means they might make a move especially if these Bigfoot people provoke them by going into the swamp, said Blue. All right, I know what to do, I told Blue. Thanks for the update. Get some sleep, buddy. We got this. Lewis, Hook, and Bryant were all walking up and down the road, stretching from the ride. The sun was coming up. Looked like it was going to be a pretty spring day. I set up the laptop on the tailgate of the vehicle, and they gathered around me. While the machine started up, I explained the conversation I had just had with Agent Blue. What are they paying us to be security for these idiots? asked Lewis. I don't know, Lewis. I didn't ask. But I'm sure they will be generous. But I never saw this as a security mission. One way or another, we're going to kill a few of these things. Inside those woods is a target-rich inventory of squatches, and I ain't passing this up. Wait a minute, said Bryant. We're on a Bigfoot kill mission and you guys get paid for it? Will you give me a break? You'll see, said Hook. Everything gets split four ways and that means you get paid too. Bryant's expression brightened. Well, I'm all in for that plan, he said. I opened the satellite image. It was a live feed. And I zoomed into our location and I found the campers. They were a mile in front of us. Bryant was shorter than the rest of us, so I pulled him up front. I wanted him to see this. The campers were milling about in red glows on an otherwise colorless screen. With the sun rising, they were moving about and cooking. I increased the field of view. And the red images remained visible, but their movements were less perceptible. Increasing the view again, we saw the river to their east. They were camped a quarter of a mile from the Natchez River. And between the campers and the river, several red heat signatures glowed on the screen. With the laptop cradled in my left arm, I pointed to the heat signature so that Bryant could see them. That's what we're here for, man, I said. Well, that looks like more people, said Bryant. I zoomed in close to one of the larger images. It should have been clear to anyone that this was not another person. Bryant's eyes got wide. That really isn't a human, is it? He asked. That's what we've been telling you, dumbass, said Lewis, rubbing Bryant's head. 
So we really are hunting these things? asked Bryant. I reached into the back of Hook's vehicle and withdrew a rifle and I handed it to Bryant. Then I gave him a vest with each pouch filled with full magazines. We kill one or ten, we split it four ways, said Hook. You ready to make some money? Oh, I'm always ready to make some money, said Bryant. Thanks for including me in this gig. How much are we talking about exactly? I'm cold on what a Bigfoot bounty is these days. That's what I like to hear, I said. You won't be disappointed. Bryant checked his rifle. He broke it down like an expert, making sure the rifle was in good condition. It was well maintained. He put it all back together in record time, and then he strapped on the vest and installed a magazine and stood there waiting for whatever was next. He had a murderous look in his eyes. Damn, he almost looked scary. Thirty minutes later, we approached the camp on foot. Our cover would be that we were hunting pigs in the swamps and we were just passing through. We would find a reason to stop and talk to the camper so I could figure out who the leader was, and then I'd pull him aside and give him the bad news. I knew he wouldn't listen, but I had to try. I figured we had a 10% chance of getting them to leave so that we could go to work on this nasty clan of squatches. But in the end, it didn't matter. We knew where they were. I had no problem walking off in those woods and lighting them up. Our appearance in the camp did not sit well with the campers. We looked like a group of guerrilla insurgents going into a fight. Rifles, pistols, knives, and other assorted killing tools hung from our bodies. I guess I would get worried if I walked up on myself under these situations. Four men approached us before we got into the camping area, and they looked worried and in disbelief like they didn't expect to see anyone in these swamps all weekend. I reached out my hand to the nearest man and I introduced myself. Lewis and Hook and I have a manner in common, and it disarms people immediately. Hell, all you gotta do is be friendly. After we explained that we were hunting pigs and their wariness seemed to drop a few notches, and then they invited us into camp to eat breakfast. I thought Hook and Lewis were going to break their necks trying to get to the food. Neither had eaten since last night, and Bryant and I strolled into camp after them. By the time Bryant and I got to the big community campfire, Lewis and Hook had their plates full of food. Lewis grinned, and then he winked at me, and then he started to dig in. I couldn't help but admire the hospitality these folks showered us with, but the people who first greeted us were the people who behaved this way all the time. They live happy and friendly lives, no matter where they are. They welcome strangers and make sure they have plenty to eat and that they feel included. I like people like that, but on the other side of the camp, I saw a group gathered talking in hushed voices. Now and then one of them would look over at us like they had a bug up their ass. In the middle of the huddle was that fat slob I assumed was Chatham. And way before we got there, I knew that he would need us gone to keep his group's attention captive and that there would be a problem. I doubted that telling him about the danger that they were in would do any good or make them pack up and get out. But again, I had to try. It was the easy way. The sun was up. It would be a pretty day, at least for a while. The enemy would stay concealed in the swamp until dark, 
So I had time to relax and get acquainted with some of these folks before I dropped the bomb on Chatham. The pancakes looked good, and steam swirled in the air above them. With a paper plate in hand, I loaded up with the unhealthy food and drowned it in butter and syrup. Bright was right behind me. His plate was so full I thought it was going to fold over. We ate and got acquainted with as many as we could approach. We talked about hunting and there were really pigs in this area and were they in danger from pigs or our bullets? I didn't have the heart to tell them why we were really there. All these people wanted to do was have a Sasquatch experience. They had paid good money to be here, but they had paid a con man who didn't believe in the Squatches at all. If I didn't figure out a way to get them to leave, they would have the experience, but it wouldn't be what they expected. I have fun hunting Squatches and I laugh about some of it, but this time I felt sorry for some of these nice people. That is, until Miss Smarty Breeches came over with her husband. Are you all really going to kill pigs in these woods? She asked. I looked up at her with a mouthful of pancakes and I tried to get out a, yeah. She had her hands on her hips and swooped her hand at me when she talked. You are what is wrong with this world. Killing these beautiful animals is horrible. My husband and I want you to leave right this minute. I kept chewing and I just looked at her. She went on for ten minutes giving me the swishy hand between every two words she spoke. Sometimes that index finger would go straight in the air to emphasize a point, and Bryant had slinked away when she first opened her mouth. He abandoned me. At some point during her lecture on the evils of killing anything, I looked around her hip and I saw my team on the other side of the fire. They had moved their lawn chairs in line, looking right at us, and I think they were enjoying this show. Like they were at a movie eating popcorn or something, but it was pancakes. Lewis held his fork up in there and he smiled at me while he mouthed silently, Kick her ass, Steve, kick her ass. Food fell out of his mouth when he started to laugh, and Bryant was steady eating pancakes, and Hook was finished and now leaned back with his legs crossed and his fingers to his chin. When she finished, she stormed off and headed for the snobby group who had been whispering among themselves throughout the rant. Her husband, who was half her size, followed like a puppy. I never got to respond, so I kept eating after I flipped my friends the bird. Well, not long after that, she waddled back with Chatham in tow, and I stood and we shook hands. Tom Chatham, these men are pig hunters and I demand that you tell these men to leave this minute, she demanded. I won't go into the conversation after that, but he did as she asked. We weren't here primarily to get these people to leave. It wasn't really our mission, even though Agent Blue thought it was what we would do. I can't force people to do anything, and I doubted we could persuade them. All right, I said, we'll move on to another spot and hunt. Thank you very much for the breakfast. The food was delicious. I nodded to the group who had cooked the meal. They smiled back and they seemed embarrassed that we had been treated so badly. Thirty minutes later, we were back at the vehicle. Well, that didn't go like I thought it would, said Lewis. 
You got that right, I said. Hook walked up and said, What do you want to do, Steve? I say we move in there and start killing these things now. Let's make some money and get out and be home for supper tomorrow. You read my mind, Hook Man, I said. We were already geared up. All we needed to do now is locate as many as we could and move in and start killing. The daylight would make it a lot easier on us, actually. The NVGs always give me a headache. I pulled up the live satellite, and we could make out several squatches hiding in the trees close to the camp. Some were on the ground, and others were in the trees. They are the masters of concealment, but we know how to find them, satellite or not. We are going to scare the shit out of those people when we start shooting, said Lewis. Those squatches are what, 100 yards from the camp? Well, I don't see that we have a choice, I said. How about we put on suppressors and keep the noise to a minimum? That's going to affect our accuracy a little bit, said Hook. We can deal with that, I said. All right, let's go, said Bryant. I want to see one of these things. The sound of a vehicle broke our conversation up. A large four-wheel drive pulled up next to Hook's SUV. Chatham was driving and two others were inside, but we couldn't see into the tinted glass to make out who they were. And then a voice we could mistake boomed from the rear seat. It was Blabbermouth. She was running her mouth about us killing something and I could see that finger wagging through the open driver's side window. Her husband was with her in the back. God, I felt sorry for that man. Hook leaned up behind my ear and he said, They're about to screw up this gig, Steve. Get rid of these sons of bitches. I walked up to the truck. Hi, my name's Steve. How are y'all? Chatham spoke up. We're making sure you fellas leave the area, Steve. We're conducting an important research project in this area over the next few days. We can't have anyone in these woods. It's going to destroy our data. Are you a scientist? I asked. Sir, you need to leave, please. And then Blabbermouth rolled her window down. There are endangered creatures in this area, and you will not be in those woods with guns. Do you understand me? Am I loud and clear? You should have left 30 minutes ago. Well, we just walked to our truck, lady. I looked back at my crew. Lewis covered his bottom lip with his teeth and was doing some sort of subtle studio wrestling move. I think he was encouraging me to put this bitch in a headlock. I didn't want to tangle with this woman. Hell, she's a big woman. She might whoop my ass in front of everyone. I focused my attention back to Chatham, the scientist. Mr. Chatham, will you please step out of the car, walk back over here and have a conversation with me, I asked. Reluctantly, he stepped down from the truck. We walked far enough so that Blabbermouth and her old man couldn't hear us. She tried to follow, but Lewis cut her off. I think it made her feel a bit uneasy. I know who you are, Tom Chatham, and we know what your con is here. A problem has developed, and after I explain this to you, I think you will be grateful, or you should be. There are actually Sasquatches in these woods, and they've been watching your camp all night. They're sizing you up. They're thinking things through. Tonight, some of your campers may come up missing. Look, human flesh is a treat for these filthy things. I need you to break this party up and send everyone home. You're putting all these people in great danger. 
Well, he looked at me like I was crazy. I knew this wouldn't work, but I did have to try. Before he could speak, I said, You aren't leaving, are you? Mr. Lilly, these people will hang me if I send them home. They paid for an experience, and I plan to give them one. Are you sure there's real Sasquatches in these woods? He asked. You don't really believe they're real, do you? If you don't get these folks to leave, Chatham, you will find out they're very real. They're not the fluffy giants some people make them out to be. You're lying to me. You're just trying to ruin my business. That's what you're up to. We are going to stay until Sunday evening. Will you please just move along, Steve? Please. I suit yourself, I said. Remember, I warned you. Chatham walked back to his truck. Blabbermouth stared at me like she wanted to kill me. Finally, she crawled into the rear seat. I heard her screaming at her husband for being so weak that he wouldn't get out of the truck. They turned around and they drove back to their camp. Chatham didn't speak on the short drive back to camp. How much did these guys know about his scam? He hoped they would leave and let him finish the weekend. On the next paid excursion, he would secure a place that he could lock off and keep everyone out. This gig was too good to get it messed up. He needed to clear his mind and get back into character. Now was the time of the day to gather everyone around and start telling stories of his experiences with these squatches. He had never been here, but no one knew that. His imagination was wild enough to make up stories on the fly, or he could ad-lib. He was the master at that. Sometimes he amazed himself. He loved the captive audience the most. It was almost like these people worshipped him, like he was the Bigfoot guru and the leader of a small cult. Driving in, the thought of the image from the night before had popped into his mind. The creature standing there was something in its hand. In his mind, he knew now that it was a body, a human body hanging limp from the creature's hand, and then it was gone. He shook his head as he stepped down from the cab. He was imagining things again. He needed a break after this trip, but for now, he had to put on his cheerful, happy face and play it up for the people who would film his stories and later upload it to social media. This was very important. They were his advertisers. $90,000 this weekend. The next excursion could make twice that if he played this one right. He headed for his tent to throw on a sweatshirt. Clouds had formed and a front was moving through. Before stepping into the tent, he reached into his pocket and he mashed a button for the speaker that worked. It played a long moan, a moan the campers had not heard before. The whole camp gathered around him at the fire. Everyone moved in close to hear everything that he said. Tripods were set up and the YouTubers began filming. And Chatham began his act. I'd like to tell you a few experiences I've had in this area. The Sabe people here have accepted me and welcomed me as one of their own. At 4 p.m. this afternoon, we will take a walk out into their domain, and hopefully we will get a visual. But let me tell you about my first encounter here. 
Chatham ended the talk with his experience of being invited to the Sabe to the birth of twin Sasquatches. He talked for three hours, telling lie after lie. The crowd looked like children on Christmas morning, with an ooh or an ah that could be heard now and then. By 2.45, he had them wrapped around his finger. Anyone who would like to venture into the woods to have a possible sighting, meet me back here in 15 minutes. We will venture out in groups of 10. We will spend an hour making offerings to the Sabe people and then back here. By tomorrow at the end of the day, you will all have a chance to see the Sabe. Chatham walked to his tent and pressed the button on his remote again, and another call echoed through the thick forest. He turned and yelled back to the crowd, I think I know the direction that we're going to go with the first group. The campers were giddy. They were excited now. They began strapping on hiking boots and gathering walking sticks. SD cards and batteries were changed out on their cameras. They had yet to fathom the danger this man had put them in. Steve, what are they doing? asked Hook. Still sitting around, fat ass? What the hell is he talking to them about? We had moved to an area with an access to the woods to the west of the campsite. Unless they came looking for us, the campers would never see Hook's SUV. How about we move into position behind these squatches and catch them from behind? If they're going to make a move on this group, it'll be tonight. Let's get set up and ready. It's four o'clock right now. By five, we should be in position. Let's go, said Lewis. He was bored out of his mind sitting around for the last four hours. I pulled up the satellite image. We counted eight squatches still hunkered down a short distance from the camp. This was going to be bad, and I wondered if we could cause enough commotion to keep the campers safe. We owed them that much. Innocent people lured in by this scammer, and I figured once the shooting started, the squatches would forget about the campers and come after us. The tables would turn, but we had the element of surprise on our side. I doubted there were only eight squatches in this group. I figured maybe twelve tops. The question was... Where were the other four that we couldn't see? I widened the field of view on the screen and I saw a small group leaving the campsite. They were heading away from us and away from the squatches. As soon as they entered the woods, the squatches began to move and mirror them at a distance where the humans wouldn't notice. Them some bitches are sneaky, I'm telling you. Alright boys, I said. Things are happening. Hey Brian, did you learn about flanking in the Marine Corps? Well, hell, Steve, that's all Marines do, flank and attack. So if I know where the enemy is, roughly, I can flank any number of moving enemy units. Damn straight, I said. Me and Brian are going to hustle up and get in front of these idiots and ambush these squatches. Hook, you move straight up this ditch bank until you're 50 yards from the camp. Keep the road and the woods in sight in case these fuckers double back on us. Lewis, move out halfway between here and the river then move straight up the pike. After me and Brian take these three out, I pointed to the three squatches following the group of campers. Then we'll meet in the middle. I think there are more than eight in this bunch, so you guys watch your backs. It's important that we meet in the middle so we can stick together after the shooting starts. 
That sounds good, said Hook, and off he walked into the woods at a steady pace. After thirty seconds, the big biker had vanished into nothing. Lewis dropped four more AR-10 mags into his vest and walked into the swamp, weaving through the woods, avoiding the water where he could, and then we couldn't see him either. Through my throat, Mike, I did a comms check. Everyone answered. From here on out, we would try to be silent until the killing started. Me and Bryant jogged straight down the muddy road until we were parallel with the campers in front of the squatches. I checked the laptop one more time. Hook was in his spot. Lewis was slowly moving up the pipe. I let them know the distance and directions of the squatches in front of them, and by now, Bryant and me had caught our wind, and we moved on into the swamp. Bryant is not a big man. He stands probably at 5'7", and I bet he weighs a buck fifty wet. But that boy can move through the woods. I stopped and whispered to him, You understand what we're doing here, right? Well, he looked at me kind of funny like, Yeah, why did you stop? Because you know more about this flanking shit than I do, I said. Get up front and put us in an ambush position. Don't get too far ahead of me, you little wiry turd. All right, let's go, is all he said. I think he was enjoying this. I wondered how he would do when he saw his first squatch. We wove through the woods, staying on dry ground and making very little noise. I moved like he moved and stopped when he stopped. I ran when he ran and I watched every move he made. He slowed in front of me and he crouched down. Then he pointed to his eyes and then over a pile of brush, telling me he had eyes on something. I lowered a limb a little bit in front of me and I saw the camper struggling to walk through the briars and the brambles. I crawled over to Bright and I whispered, The squatches will be along any minute, brother. They will come from this direction. Just to be clear, we have to make headshots if we can. I know these weapons are suppressed, but if one makes a noise, they'll call the whole clan on us. We gotta drop them right where they stand. You got it? If this rifle is on, that won't be a problem, said Bryant. It's on. I just hope it's on with your eye. I can adjust. You be ready to back up my first shot if I'm off. Then we can shake and bake with these things, Steve. Aight, killer, I said. We hunkered down and watched the campers mosey on by at a slow pace. At one point, they were within a few yards of us. They just walked on by, old Chatham just running his mouth the whole time. Soon we couldn't hear him anymore. Ten minutes passed and no squatches arrived. It worried me a little. Maybe they had changed routes. I was about to take the laptop from my backpack when the ugly head of a young male poked around a tree. Scared the shit out of me, and I fell back trying to raise my rifle. I heard a short thud, and the squatch's head exploded into chunks. I looked over at Bryant, and his rifle was back in position, looking outward. He had killed that thing and resumed his position, and I never saw him move. He pointed back at his eyes, and then over the brush again. Three. Not two squatches were left, belly crawling in toward us through the mud and the water. Bryant twitched his head and motioned for me to get up. That's right, I needed to back up his first shot. Once he was in position and I had my dot on the closest squatch's head, I heard Bryant say, 
nearest on the right. Shoot, is all I had to say, and his rifle buckled against his shoulder. Oh, he was on. I moved to the farthest beast on the left and dropped it while he took the last in the middle. They weren't spectacular kills. The squatches were already low to the ground anyway. My favorite is shooting these some bitches out of trees. I like to watch them hit the ground, and it's better when they hit a few limbs on the way down. That's a spectacular kill right there. You're a natural boy, I said. Oh, this is easy, he said. This is an enemy that doesn't shoot back. Well, I got his point. After taking one more look at the laptop, I saw that everyone was in the same place, even the squatches that had been watching the camp for the last 24 hours. They hadn't heard a thing. I did, however, see two individuals working their way into the woods out of the campsite. They were heading straight toward the river. Five squatches lay in their path. There were three on the ground and two in the trees. I clicked my throat, my Four squatches down over here, boys, I said over the comms. We be heading your way. Come on, I heard Lewis say. Lewis, Hook, I see two campers walking out into the woods from camp. They're halfway between us. Why don't you boys move on up? I don't think the squatches waiting on them are going to run away. We're moving, said Hook over the comms. Hook, maybe you should stay within sight of the road. None of the kills we made are alphas. The images I see don't look to have enough size to be an alpha. He's out there somewhere. I bet he's across the road. When the shooting starts, he's coming. Maybe you can catch him before he gets to us. Oh, that would be my pleasure, Steve, said Hook. We started making our way back to the campsite. And I held the laptop cradled in my left arm so I could check it periodically. Bryant had my back and this was working out real good. I looked over at him, and somewhere along the path, he had stopped and smeared mud all over his face. I asked him if he fell. He said, no, old habits die hard. I admired his style, the way he moved low with his rifle ready to snap off around in a split second. I needed to learn more about how he did things. So far in this new profession of ours, we had only had two real close calls. Today, we were still up against great odds. Now again, these things are sneaky, and that's what I told Bryant when he asked about them spider crawling in on us. He had not expected that, and I think it freaked him out a little bit. We hadn't even seen the first one come in. I told him they were sneaky, and that to expect the unexpected. The way he was moving, his eyes were black as a shark, every fiber in his being ready to react to whatever threat we faced and that mud on his face he was a killing machine we faced a vicious adversary and i would hate for one of these things to get a hold of him i didn't know his family who would i call i had to wipe those thoughts from my mind the sort of thing is what gets us hurt focus steve i whispered everybody's gonna be okay we already had 20K in the bag, and I am an eternal optimist, I suppose. <music> Renee Tenzit's husband reluctantly followed her into the woods. He told her that they should wait on Chatham to go out into the woods because it was dangerous, he thought. 
She would have none of that. And she wagged her finger in his face, doing the Cleopatra head move, and told him, I paid good money to finally see my beloved Sabe. That is exactly what I'm going to do. You can stay in camp if you want. Don't worry that I'll think less of you as a man, you pussy. Roger Tenzit bowed his head and relented. A short walk in the woods couldn't be that big of a deal. She made so much noise that if there were Sasquatch in the area, they would run for their lives. He was more worried about getting lost in there. I mean, these woods were creepy. Spending the night in there would be miserable. But they wouldn't go that far, he thought, so this wasn't a big deal. Now they were so deep in the swamp, though, he couldn't remember which way camp was. But still, he followed his boss, Renee. Had he not, there would have been hell to pay for a week. So the decision-making process was a useless effort in the first place. Honey, uh, I think we've gone far enough. Shut up, she said, cutting him off. She stopped and took a deep breath and turned to face Roger and then lightened her tone a bit. The Sabe beings are here, you dummy. I can feel them. I need to speak to them, Roger. I came here to see one of these creatures, and by God, that's what I'm going to do. Years of this, and he was conditioned to not object. When she turned to continue her walk, he rolled his eyes and then dutifully followed. They had stepped off into the water a few minutes ago, it was getting deeper. Ahead, Roger saw a rise in the land, a place that could stand on dry ground. Renee was heading for it, and she turned back to him. I want to get on that knoll and speak to the Sabe beings. I know they will respond, she whispered. Now standing beside a large oak tree that grew from the knoll, Roger stood next to Renee, looking stupidly into the woods. He almost expected a creature to appear. Well, do you see anything? He asked. Shut up and go stand over there by that tree. I will not have this. I will not have you screwing this up for me. That tree over there. Now get over there now, she ordered. Roger hung his head and began the slow walk to an adjacent tree, swatting away gnats that buzzed around his face. After spitting a few from his mouth, he turned and leaned against the big trunk, and he relaxed. This will be over soon, he thought. Those hot dogs sure will be good tonight, and I hope we can find our way back. Renee walked another twenty feet onto the raised area and began speaking in a moderate voice. My Sabe friends, ancient overseers of the forest. We come to you today to learn of your ways and receive your wisdom. If you will show yourself as you have to Shamabobo, that's the name Chatham made up and claimed is the name the Squatches had given him, we will receive you and be open to the miracles of the Sabe clan. We humbly ask to be named and become part of your society. The couple stood in the swamp for several minutes. Only birds sang in the distance with their spring chatter. Shamabobo, Shamabobo has given us his blessing to approach you. Again, great Sabe people, we ask to receive the wisdom of the ages and to learn your ancient ways. 
We come in peace and ask that you accept us and even name us. Renee said all this a bit louder than before, and Roger leaned against a tree and picked at his teeth. He was getting hungry and still worried they were lost. When she finished her plea, they heard branches cracking above them. A Sasquatch was sliding down the trunk of the tree in which she stood beneath. Bark and leaves and small branches rained down on Renee. She was startled and wasn't sure what was happening, but with a thud, a nine-foot-tall beast landed on two feet right in front of her. After brushing the twigs and leaves from her big hair, she looked up at the thing. It wasn't what she expected. She was taken aback and gasped at the hideousness of this thing's appearance. The most notable feature, other than its size, was the protruding chin and underbite. Obviously a defect from birth, she thought, or did they all look like this? Huge fangs jutted upward from the lower jaw, and mucus or green snot ran out of its nose and dripped from its chin. Mixed with the drool, it was the most horrid thing she had ever seen. It stretched its face to the sky in a slow circle, making its chin more pronounced, like it was stretching its neck, and then it let out a lung full of air. The odor from its breath was nauseating, and she took two steps back. She tried to wipe the mucus from her shirt. It had been blown there when he breathed out but it only clung to her hands and smeared down to her waist. The creature emitted a low, snotty, obstructed growl, and then it grinned at her. Roger was gone. She looked back to him for help. Slight splashes through the shallow water let her know that her husband had hightailed it out of there. The beast stepped toward her and extended his massive arms. And for a second, she thought about running. This thing didn't fit the image she had cataloged in her mind. But in a moment of rational thought, she decided not to allow the creature's appearance to cloud her judgment and ruin her encounter with the wise Sabe people. She would find out in a few seconds that she had been wrong about them all along. Terribly wrong. <laughs> Hey, Steve, are you seeing this? Asked Hook over the comms. Not yet. We aren't there yet. Give me three minutes and we should get a visual. Bryant and I got hung up in a pile of blown down trees. To this day, I have never seen so many trees down in a long strip like that. A twister must have come through at some point and created a barrier to where we were trying to get to. Two minutes later, we took up a position behind a large tree laying on its side. We didn't need to use field glasses to see what was happening, but we used them anyway. Next to a huge tree in an open area stood one of the campers. It was a female, and she was alone, her bright pink sweater blazing in contrast with the surroundings. Approaching her was a young male squatch. He was one step away with his arms extended toward the camper, and she appeared to stop him by raising a hand and wagging her finger in his face. And that's when I knew who this was. It was Blabbermouth, 
She had walked into the woods alone, probably thinking she would have a gentle encounter with Harry from the Hendersons. She was backing away. A few more steps backward put her ankle deep in the water. And then she stopped as if she were relenting or surrendering to this nasty creature's advance. And in a remarkable gesture, one that I will never forget, she reached her arms up toward it and gestured for the filthy beast to come closer. She thought she was about to hug a squatch, but she wasn't. The creature slowly reached its arm toward hers and locked onto it with a grip that was apparently uncomfortable. She let him know right away that she wasn't having this rough play, and that finger went up and the Cleopatra head swag followed. But I don't think he was listening. I'm taking this fucker out, Steve, I heard Lewis say in my ear. Hold your fire, man, I said. Keep him in line for a kill shot. You can squeeze it off when you need to. Let's just see what that monster wants with her. Hook chimed in. This is dangerous, Steve. Let Lewis kill this thing now. I have him too. We didn't come all this way to teach this chick a lesson. We came to get paid. We are going to get paid, boys, I said, and we won't let Loverboy here hurt this woman as long as one or both of you have him lined up. Let's see what he has in mind. Bryant spoke up and affirmed that he had the big male painted as well. You ain't right, Steve Lilly, said Lewis, but if he twitches, I'm putting around through that ugly face. Ten-four, brother, I said, and we waited and we watched. The beast walked holding Blabbermouth's arm, dragging her through the mud the last few feet. It released her and let her fall to the ground. She stood up and brushed the leaves and trash from her sweater and hair and then turned away and began to stomp out of the area. The big male sent a strange gurgling call into the woods west of him, and Blabbermouth stopped and she looked back. Several squatches appeared and walked toward her, and she backed up even more. But a young male, the size of a grown man, crabbed up to her at lightning speed and snatched her leg, sending her to the ground again. What the hell are you doing to me? We heard Blabbermouth scream. Someone help me! Please help me! The four of us could clearly see through our scopes what this thing was doing. And for the sake of anyone reading this, I won't go into details. But if you have ever had an experience with a Mississippi leg hound, that is basically what was happening. It is normal animal behavior and easy to remedy with a dog. But these squatches had other plans for this woman, so I called the shot. I got the dry humper. You fellas pick other targets, I said through my throat mic. I listened through my earpiece as the boys worked out their targets. They each chose one closest to Blabbermouth, and then we would work our way out and finally kill them all. Y'all ready? I said. Let's give this woman some relief, chuckled Hook. I hit the young male in the top of the head. It was facing toward me, and he was giving me a perfect shot. There was no pink mist with this shot. I think the bullet traveled his body length and exited out his butt. He slumped dead, flat down on Blabbermouth, and her ordeal was over. 
Within three seconds, four squatches drop like sacks of ready mix with the sound of suppressed rounds echoing through the trees. We immediately found more targets, and in less than a minute later, eight squatches slumped to the ground. Out of those eight, only two showed signs of death twitches. They were hit with death shots, but we put an extra round in each one to be sure. And then we approached the scene ready to take out anything that survived, and no other rounds were required. I ran to the woman, feeling a bit sorry for her experience. That is, until I got to her. After rolling the beast off of her, I reached to help her up, when she slapped my hand away. Do not touch me, she screamed. Well, all right, get your own ass off the ground then, I think I said. That young Sabe and I were bonding and then you killed them all. I had the experience I had been praying for for years and now you've killed them all. Lady, that Sasquatch was not bonding with you in the sense that you think, said Hook. He was about to hurt you. That is absurd, you idiot. Why do you macho men think that guns and killing are the answer to everything? Because once these nasty things are finished with you, they were going to eat you, ma'am, said Lewis. You should be thanking us. Idiots, pure inbred idiots, she screamed as she straightened her clothes and attempted to wipe the snot from the creature off of her face. Blabbermouth turned and stomped off into the woods. The campsite is that way, I said. And she turned 180 degrees and walked back through us instead of tromping off into the river only a short distance to the west. Well, that went over just great, said Hook. These some bitches are all crazy, said Lewis. Let's get these heads, I said. We're going to have to make three trips. Where's Brian? I asked. Well, he was here a minute ago, said Lewis. Brian! I was starting to worry we had lost him in all the action. I know he walked up with us. Brian, where you at, boy? We observed the woods around us, and I stopped when I saw Blabbermouth stumbling through the woods a pretty good distance away. And to her right, I could see Bright tracking her, paralleling her through the trees. She didn't know he was there. Bright, where are you going? I called to him over the comms. He stopped and put a finger to his lips and then pointed up into the trees. I knew what he was telling us. There were more squatches. We all piped down and changed magazines in our rifles, and then we spread out and started to cover the distance to converge on where he had pointed. He waved to us to come forward, and then pointed to his eyes, and then up into the treetops again. With his eyes upward, he moved around between where he pointed and the woman who was now picking up speed, but still tripping and falling every ten steps. He was putting himself between her and the squatch, he was protecting her. Finally, and after slowly moving into place, we all could see the outline of the big alpha way up in the tree. Remarkably, he wasn't paying attention to us. He had his eyes on the woman. These things have a one-track mind sometimes, if you know what I mean. Does anyone have a shot? I asked, and we all had him. Take him out, I said. Four suppressed shots went straight up into the tree, and they rang out through the woods. Now we had Big Boy's attention. None of the shots we made were kill shots. 
The leaves prevented us from seeing his head. But he was hit four times, and he let us know it. Now we had him moving, and he was raising hell. He was one of the loudest howlers I can remember, and we watched and tracked him through the trees. And when he didn't come down, we had to run to keep up with him. After a hundred-yard sprint, Bryant was way out front, wiry little shit. He raised his fist, indicating for us to stop and then pointed upward. Well, it was easy to see which tree this thing was held up in. It was the only tree swaying. It began to raise hell again, and leaves and branches were falling like snow. More branches broke and fell to the ground, and then I saw something solid fall, and at first I thought it was the beast, but then I realized it was too small. A human body hit the ground with a thud right in front of us. What the hell? The Alpha then leaped from the tree in our direction, and in slow motion to my eye, I watched this thing sail halfway down the height of that tree and catch a branch on the tree nearest to us. It only used that branch as a lever to propel itself straight down on Hook, Lewis, and I. We didn't have time to react and by the time we would have had him lined up, he would have squashed us with his weight. Bryant was popping off rounds from a few yards away the whole time. I would discover this in just a few minutes. The last two struck the beast in the side of the head. The three of us quickly stepped back, and the squatch hit the ground, blowing leaves and mud up into our faces. Well, we were speechless, and we stood there with our rifles lofted into the air, but our target lay dead at our feet. We were looking over at Bryant, and he was grinning and gave us a thumbs up, and we all burst out laughing. You a bad man, Bryant. Damn good shot, too, said Lewis through his laughter. It took a minute to regain our composure, and I walked to see the body that was dropped from the tree. The man was unrecognizable. He was half-eaten. There was no telling who he was. The body was unclothed except for a tennis shoe and a black sock on one foot. I would find no identification. and Some of his face remained intact, and we decided to drag the body to the campsite to see if anyone could identify him. When we arrived, there were only four vehicles left. Apparently, everyone packed up and was leaving. Us leaving the corpse out of view, we walked into the camp. No one paid much attention to us. They were all packing their gear in a frenzy. But we were able to stop one man and ask if the group was missing anyone. No, the man said. Renee Tenzett, a woman who was with us, took a head count and everyone was accounted for. And then her and her husband tore out of here like the place was on fire. We still don't know what got into her. She said she was in the woods and met up with the Sabe people, and they weren't as nice as we all expected and that we should all leave. And Tom Chatham, the organizer of this event, he left right behind her. Look, he went on, my name is Juan Rodriguez, and I work for the same outfit that you do. I am the eyes on the ground with these Bigfoot expedition types, these scams. We do this to try to keep people from getting eaten. Well, no shit, I said. No shit, he responded. All right, glad to meet you, Juan. Maybe I'll see you again sometime. Are you leaving? 
Yeah, I'm leaving. Maybe we will see each other again, Steve. I've heard a lot about you. Juan walked off and his gear was already loaded, but he was waiting for everyone to get out. He would be the last man to leave. I like that guy and I look forward to meeting Juan again someday. So Chatham, the con man, the man responsible for this whole mess, had left town. We would meet up with Tom Chatton again years later, but that is another story. I figured it was best this way. The word would get out that the campout was a disaster, but no one would believe the reason, especially from Renee Tenzit. That is, assuming she ever told the whole story. At any rate, we dragged the body of the man deeper into the swamp. He would be discovered by hunters the next deer season. We had no doubt. Maybe someone would be able to identify him, maybe not. There was nothing we could do at that time. I watched the last two vehicles throw gravel, leaving the campground, followed by one. They had had enough of the big thicket for one weekend, and so had I. We moved back into the swamp and took heads for two hours. It took three trips to haul all those heads out. It was our biggest payday to date. Two weeks later, Bryant pulled into work on a Friday morning, and behind his truck was a brand new aluminum bass boat. What you got there, killer? I asked. Some of that money you split with me from our trip to Texas? I bought this boat with it, he said. You want to go get some crappie at Sardis this weekend? Damn, Brian, I only need five minutes notice to go crappie fishing, I said. Hell yeah, let's go when we get off. We'll call Lewis and Hook, said Brian. I have plenty of room for everybody. Well, Hook isn't a fisherman, but Lewis, I guarantee he'll go, I said. Awesome, he said. Let's get to welding out these trusses. We got to work, and I waited for the next call from our employers. 